Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 22:14 to 30. This can be found on page 882 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home as a gift from us. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide amongst yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the wine until the kingdom comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, or this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes at it, has been determined, but woe to the man who is, uh, whom he has betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could be the one who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them, and as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You are also, or you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, dredging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Josh. Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community, especially if this is your first time with us. We're so glad that you're here. If you're just coming back uh, to church uh, in terms of uh, you've been with us online, but this is one of your first Sundays back in the building, back in person. Also, welcome back. We're so glad that you're here, and uh, it's just so good to see uh, your faces this morning. Um, We're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and uh, excited to dive into the passage that Uh, Josh just read for us. But before we do that, I want to just pause and and just ask the Holy Spirit to be at work applying uh, these words of Scripture to our lives, to our hearts. Uh, As Christians, we believe that we've actually been made alive by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5 says that, you know, if we are in Christ, we are new creations. We've been made alive by the Holy Spirit. And that the Spirit actually has this unique role of comforting, of challenging Um, us through uh, the scriptures. So we just want to acknowledge that before we begin on the sermon. Father in heaven, thank you that you have not left us alone, but that when Jesus ascended to the heaven where he is reigning at your right hand, that he sent the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as a provider, as um, one to be with us. And so we acknowledge the Spirit's presence here with us as your body gathered and ask that as we Look at this passage of Scripture, that the Spirit who inspired Luke to write these words would speak afresh to us in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, those of you who have known me for uh, any length of time know that I'm not, a, I'm not a huge sports fan. If you want to know what's happening in the world of sports, you're, you're not calling me up uh, to ask, you know, who I think is going to win 
which game. I do like baseball a lot, so I uh, have, have missed getting to go to the K and see the Royals. Really hoping, I've been following uh, spring training stuff a little bit. I'm really hoping for a chance for getting out to the K this year to, to watch a game or two. Hopefully that will, that will happen. Uh, I'm not sure how they're going to work, but I know they're, they're hoping to have some fans in the stands this year. But uh, apart from baseball, I'm just, I'm not a big sports fan. But even someone who is not a big sports fan, I do know this, that if you want to start a debate with people who are sports fans, all you have to do is just ask the question, who's the GOAT in a particular position, a particular sport? Who is the GOAT? And you can get sports fans going on that and debating who is the GOAT. But that term, the GOAT, has really gone kind of a 180 transformation in the past 20 years. Because for a long time, the idea of being the GOAT was not a good thing, right? For, for many, many years, the idea of, of being the GOAT was that was the person who, who fumbled the ball at the one-yard line, who, who missed the game-winning free throw. The person, actually, who in West Point uh, Military Academy, the person who graduates the lowest rank, the bottom of the class, was known as, is known as the GOAT, right? So for a long time to be called the GOAT, that was the worst. You did not want to be the GOAT. Uh, and, you know, that was true in, in the Bible. The language of the goat, goats are often negative. In other kind of human cultures, uh, Celtic mythology, uh, goats are a negative symbol. And so, in fact, uh, Charles Pierce, who wrote an article in, the, in Sports Illustrated about this phenomenon of the goat, he says this. Look at this quote from him. He says, for centuries of human history, right, whether you're talking about the Gospel of Matthew or the bleachers at Wrigley Field, nobody wanted to be the goat, over time, about 15-ish, 20-ish years ago, that started to change. And, and Charles Pierce, in that article, he actually points to uh, this moment when, when JQ, uh, GQ published this photo of, of he who shall not be named, right? Okay, we're not going to say the name. But when they published that photo, it's kind of a, he points that as a turning point where the goat went from being this cultural norm of the worst to now being acknowledged as the greatest of all time the greatest of all time. Now, again, if you know your sports history, you know that the first one to say that was Muhammad Ali back in the 1960s. He's the greatest of all time. In fact, uh, for many years, uh, Muhammad Ali's um, kind of brand, his, the organization that owned like all the, his publication rights, all that kind of stuff, was known as Goat Incorporated. So somewhere in that history, Goat goes from being a negative, the thing that nobody wants to be, to being the goat is the highest honor you can get, the greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. And along the way, it has completely transformed sports debate, because now all you have to do is just ask that question, who is the goat? And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus also, in a way, redefines and kind of turns the table on what it is to be great. He turns the table on what greatness is. What does it mean to be the greatest of all time? He turns it upside down here. And in this idea, what Jesus is doing here is he, he's, just, he's transforming what we would expect. Now, here's the interesting thing about it, though, is that Jesus does not condemn our desire for greatness. I think this is fascinating. Keep that in mind. He doesn't condemn our desire to be great, but he just completely retransforms <laughs> redefines what greatness is. 
So he doesn't condemn our longing to be great, but he turns it upside down on what greatness is. And so if you haven't already, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. Uh, We're going to be looking at verse 1 to begin with. So Luke chapter 22, verse 1. You can pull that up on your phone or grab it, one of the the pew Bibles. Again, it's like page 880-something there, 882, I think. Um, Bible's got two big chunks in it, Old Testament, New Testament, New Testament, uh, first three books, Matthew, Mark, and then you get to Luke, and you can find chapter 22 there. And as Luke chapter 22 opens, we find Jesus getting ready to celebrate the Passover. Now, the Passover is the sort of the greatest, uh, the, the, greatest, the, the most significant uh, festival feast in all of uh, Jewish tradition. So, it is remembering the moment when God rescues his people out of Egypt and, and takes them uh, crossing the Red Sea and into the wilderness and into the promised land, this Passover event is kind of the key feast. It is the highest point of the Jewish calendar, and Jesus is, is gathering here in Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate Passover. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has done this. He's uh, as a good uh, Jewish boy, young man. He's gone uh, to Passover probably each year, and we have a couple of those other instances recorded for us in the gospel where he goes to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, but here, this is the, the last one. It's all sort of coming to a culmination, and here's why. The chief priests and the scribes, these are the leaders, they were kind of the greatest of all times of their moment in terms of the religious and leadership community. They are the ones who had the power, the influence, they were well respected. They are trying to kill Jesus because they actually feel that their greatness is being threatened by Jesus. He's becoming incredibly popular. Their position, their power, their greatness is being threatened. And it's at this point that Judas enters into the story Maybe you've heard of Judas, Judas Iscariot. He's, he's not a, a great guy. He was one of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the 12. He followed Jesus. And imagine how well Judas knew Jesus. He spent the last three years with him traveling. G- Judas had seen the miracles. He'd seen Jesus feed the 5,000. He had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He watched Jesus heal people. We don't know why. The biblical writers don't give us insight, but at some point, Judas starts to turn against Jesus. Maybe he sort of can see in his mind what he thinks is the writing on the wall. The, the Jewish leaders are against Jesus. Every other time that someone has tried to, to go into Rome and, and sort of declare that they are the true king of the Jews, it's not ended well. Maybe Judas thinks, I'm going to get out while the getting is good, and this is my opportunity. But whatever it might be, Judas has a desire also to be great and wants to align himself with the scribes and the Pharisees and agrees to take money from them in order to betray Jesus to them at a time when there isn't a crowd around. Because the Jewish leaders, they know Jesus is popular. If they just walk into the temple in the middle of the day while Jesus is teaching and try to arrest him, there's going to be a riot. So they need Judas to betray him when he's off by himself. So this leads us to verse 22, verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. 
And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. In the absence of a crowd. Now, Satan shows up here. We're not really expecting that, right? All of a sudden, Satan appears in the narrative. This is the same one who was all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent in the garden. And you know, Satan also had a desire to be great, to be greater than God himself. And so you start to see what Luke is doing. There's a cast of characters that are coming together here. The chief priests and the scribes, they want to be great and have power. Judas wants to be great and have power. Satan wants to be great and have power. This is not an accident. Judas, or uh, rather Luke is setting up a contrast between all of those characters and what Jesus is about to do. Because what Jesus is about to do, he's about to host a meal for his friends, his followers. He's about to gather around. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus not only hosts this meal, he doesn't just set the table for them, prepare this, this, this place for them to celebrate this meal. He also washes their feet. And that was the job of the lowest servant, the lowest slave, to do this yucky work of, of getting down on their knees and washing these people's feet that are dirty and muddy and dusty. But Jesus does this with them. But actually, that's maybe not even the most stunning thing that Jesus does in this passage. What's even more stunning, but we tend to not realize how stunning it is because we're so familiar with it, is that Jesus actually takes the Passover meal and he makes it all about him. Again, we are living 2,000 years after this event where we recognize Jesus as the risen Christ who is 100% God, 100% human, uh, the, the reigning God of the universe. But remember, even for the disciples who have been with them now for these three years, they're still trying to wrap their mind around how this is just you know, a random Jewish guy from Nazareth. And now he sits down at Passover and says, this meal that's about God's deliverance of all people for out of Egypt and slavery, his rescue of his people, like, it, this actually is all about me. It's all about me. Not in a self-centered way, but in a self-giving way. Look at 22 down at verse 19. It says, And Jesus, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after they had eaten, saying, This cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus makes this incredible statement. All of this, these words that have been recited year after year of the Passover supper, Jesus says, This is about me. I'm the true Lamb. I'm the one whose blood is going to go on the doorpost so that you can be delivered from death. This all is about me. Again, this is an incredible statement for any human being to make. And if any mere human being were to make these statements, it would be blasphemous. But Jesus is true God as well as true man. And he says, this is all about me. Not in, the, not in a self-centered way, but in a self-giving way. But then Jesus takes a turn here and says something shocking all the more. 
at least for those around the table. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. You can just imagine everything goes quiet at that moment. Wait, someone's going to betray Jesus? Who could it be? You can imagine sort of the furious whispering that starts as they kind of start looking at one another saying, who, who would do that? Who could, who's going to betray Jesus? And Luke doesn't give us this detail, but what I imagine happens is this, that they start basically arguing with one another why it couldn't be them. Why wouldn't it be me? Do you know all I left to follow Jesus? I wouldn't betray him. Well, I left even more than you did. Well, you th- do you think how, do you know how loyal I've been to him? Well, if you've been loyal, I've been twice as loyal. They start arguing, and then you get what? Verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Again, Luke doesn't make that connection for us, but I I think that's the link, that Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they start trying to decide, make a case of why, well, it couldn't be me, which then quickly turns into a debate of, well, the reason I can't be me is I have done all this for Jesus. I've been this loyal. I am the greatest. It couldn't possibly be me who would betray him. This is the, the picture that we get here. And we should feel some whiplash in this moment because we go from Jesus washing their feet saying, I'm going to give my life for you. My very body and blood is going to sustain you and rescue you. I am the picture of what it means to serve self-sacrificially to them now arguing about who is going to be the apostle MVP, who's going to be the kingdom employee of the year, who's Jesus's favorite, who has done the most for him. It's kind of a sharp left turn. We should feel the whiplash in that moment. Luke wants us to. And Jesus is about to completely redefine what greatness is. Because greatness begins at the table. Greatness begins at the table. And Jesus responds to them arguing about who's going to be the greatest. He responds to them with the verses we're about to read. And, you know, again, we don't get tone, but I, I imagine that, you know, Jesus, we're told, he's, he's gentle, he's humble. So I think he speaks these words in gentleness. But I, I also think he speaks these words with some sadness, and maybe even a little hint of frustration. So as we read these verses, listen, listen for that in, in the verses. Some, some gentleness, yes, but also maybe some sadness and frustration. Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But... I am among you as the one who serves. 
I'm among you as the one who serves. Now, Jesus, here he recognizes. Jesus is not, not ignorant. Uh, like, in the eyes of the world, if you want to be like a king of the Gentiles, if you want to rule in that kind of way, of course, the one sitting at the table is the greatest, not the one serving. Jesus gets it from a human perspective, from a worldly perspective. The one sitting at the table, being served, is greater than the one who is serving. He says, I'm among you as one who serves. So what does that mean? Who am I? And what does that mean? Jesus is completely turning this upside down. He's completely turning it upside down. Because again, the table has always been, we're saying right over and over again this morning, greatness begins at the table. The table has always been a place where greatness has been displayed. But in the history of the world, even in our contemporary setting, both then and now, oftentimes the table is the place where greatness is displayed in the more worldly sense, right? Who is at the head of the table? Who sits closest to the guest of honor? Jesus even says earlier in the Gospels, right, there's places where he talks about don't take the, the, the prominent seat, sit, sit at the, the less prominent place and be invited up to sit at the more prominent place. That's how you ought to do it. The table is always a place where people would look. Who's sitting where? Who's most powerful? Who's the guest of honor? Who's seated next to them? The table is a place you looked to for greatness, right? And even in our, our moment, right? Typically, it's like, who's, who's greater, right? The tennis player or the ball boy? Who's greater, the quarterback or the water boy? Who's greater if you walk into a fancy restaurant and you see someone sipping an expensive glass of wine and you then see someone else in an apron pouring that glass of wine? Who, who's, who's the greater one? Jesus says, from a worldly perspective, it is easy to answer that question very clearly. The, the quarterback, the tennis star, the one at the table, they are the greater. But he says, I take the position of the one who serves. He turns greatness upside down. So as we look at this, I want to make three kind of applicational observations for us about how greatness begins the table Because greatness begins at the table not with first, not with ruling, but with needing. Not with ruling, but with needing. Again, there's this pattern, Jesus says, of the first becoming the last, the youngest being elevated, the one who serves being like, that's the kind of one you want to lead. There's this transformation that takes place. And this pattern that Jesus points to here is one that actually is, this is not new. This is something that's unfolded all throughout the scriptures. Because even back in the book of Genesis, God has this pattern. It's interesting that Jesus mentions the youngest here. Jesus has the pattern of picking, or God has the pattern in the Old Testament of picking the youngest, often over the oldest, in a culture where to be the oldest, especially the oldest son, was the coveted position of power, inheritance, of strength. But oftentimes, but he chooses Jacob, not Esau. He chooses, um, you know, this, this whole pattern throughout of different people who are unexpected. In fact, the whole of Israel, right, is not being chosen because they are the greatest, but because they're the least, right? If you, actually, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I've got this on the screen, but we pulled this first here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what God says as his people are about to enter into the land. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. I didn't choose you because of your greatest. Why did I choose you? But it was because the Lord loved you 
and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors. Jesus is just picking up on this pattern that has always been true, that he does not choose people because they are the greatest or the most significant or because they have it all together. The lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, they're all a mess. You know, they are not, I mean, they have some great moments of faith, but they are not moral exemplars in most cases. They blow it big time. But that's not why God chose them. He chose them because he loved them, not because they were great. And so when we come to the table, specifically the, the communion table, the Lord's Supper, it, we, we come not with this posture of ruling and superiority, but with this posture of open, empty hands saying, I am in need. I'm in need of love. I'm in need of rescue. Because our problem at the end of the day as human beings is not that we need a little bit more education. Our our, our problem is not that we need some counseling or a budget or a life coach or a better pastor or a better sermon. Though you could, all of you could probably benefit from all of those things, right? But the Bible says our deepest problem, our deepest need is that actually we are spiritually dead and we need to be made alive. We need to be raised from the dead. And actually, friends, that's incredibly freeing because in the meal of communion, in the Lord's Supper, we declare that every single time that we are coming in open hands, desperate in need. And, and why that is so freeing is because at the table, you do not have to pretend your life is all together. Because the reason that you are there at the table is because you know it isn't. You know that you need forgiveness. You know that you need healing. You know that you need to be reminded again and again that I was dead, but I have been made alive in Christ. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You don't have to pretend you have it all together. I don't know about you, but how much of my life is spent trying to put off a, a, some sense of competency and that, I, that I've, I've got it together. You don't have to do that at the table. You come open hands, not ruling, but needing. Which leads us to the second point here, which is that we also come not earning, but receiving. We, because we come needing, we come also not, not in the sense of, of, of earning anything, but of, of receiving Because not only does the table show us our great need, that it took the death of Jesus on the cross to forgive our sin, but it also shows how incredibly loved we are. But here's the thing, we are so hardwired as people towards earning, towards achieving. And I think especially in a culture like ours that really holds itself up as a meritocracy. You know, I... We don't live up to that ideal, right? I mean, lots of, lots of research on that, right? Uneven playing field for different groups, all that kind of thing. But like we, the ideal, the mythology in our culture is it's meritocracy, right? If you just work hard enough, if you just put in the effort, if you just try, if you just achieve, then you can rise in your career, in your socioeconomic status, that, that all, and that's not to denigrate hard work at all, but I'm just saying, in, in our culture, that is what is held up as, as mythology, that it is about your achievement, and you can do it if you just hustle, if you just work hard enough, that you can climb and achieve. And in that culture, like, we just get swept up in that. But it's not about earning. 
It's about receiving. Greatness is not about proving ourselves. Because in Jesus' kingdom, don't miss this, in Jesus' kingdom, your identity and your worth are not achieved, but received. In Jesus' kingdom, your identity, your worth, what, what makes you valuable, what makes you worth something, is not achieved by you, but received from God. And I don't want us to rush past this because do you get how much of a fundamental, like foundational level change that has in your life? Like if you really start to think out the implications of that, just think about this. If your identity and worth are achieved by you, that means that they can, those things can be lost. They can be taken away. Like you can actually find yourself without an identity without a sense of worth, in a place of despair, if it's achieved by you, right? So well, let's just think this out for a minute. So if, if your identity and, and achievement is based on the accumulation of wealth, then all of a sudden a, a bear market, a recession, a global pandemic that, you know, I mean, stock markets come skyrocketing back, but like initially there, like some of us watched those portfolio numbers just nosedive, right? If your identity and worth is based on accumulation of wealth, then you are just, it's always a, a stock market plunge away from being taken away. Or what if your, like, your sense of identity and worth is, is based on the reputation that you have among your friends? You're a great person, that you're loving, that you're helpful. All it takes, though, is one bit of gossip from a friend who doesn't like you, from a friend who's upset with you, and all of a sudden, that reputation can be ruined, and you've got nothing. Or maybe it's career advancement. Like I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm really good at the work I do. But the moment that you lose your job, or you don't get the promotion, all that's gone. But friends, if on the other hand, your identity is received from Jesus, then that means that he's the only one who can take it away, and that means that if, if Jesus has promised you an identity, that you are loved, that you are a son and daughter, that you've been adopted into his kingdom, that identity can never be, the only way that identity gets taken away is that if Jesus comes back down to heaven, goes back into the grave, and doesn't rise from the dead, and that is not happening. Your identity is as secure as the empty tomb and the risen and ascended Jesus who has promised to come back and judge the living and the dead. Nothing can take it away from you. Right? Paul says in Romans, nothing, not life, not death, no power, anything can separate you from the love that you have received in Jesus. Nothing. So do you see how that kind of changes the, from a, a platform of, of sand that's shifting constantly to a solid rock on which your identity and your worth are based on? Greatness at the table, it begins not with earning, but with receiving. And here's one other quick thing on that. If your identity is earned, then it it places you at the center. But if your identity is received, it actually places Jesus and others at the center of your life because you don't actually have to keep proving yourself over and over again. You can just serve and love others. 
it takes you out of the center and puts Jesus and others, your neighbor, at the center. Which leads us to our third point here, one more, and that is that Great to the Table begins with not comparing, but with serving. Not with comparing, but with serving. Again, Jesus is turning upside down the idea of greatness, but he doesn't say that the desire for greatness is wrong. Nowhere in here does he say you shouldn't long to be great. He just says the kind of greatness that typically you think of is, is not what I'm talking about. But you ought to long for the kind of greatness that I'm describing, which is to serve. The kind of serving, right? And, and when uh, we do this, we don't have to compare ourselves. If our posture towards other people is one of service, we, don't, we no longer compare ourselves to one another. Again, how many, just think through maybe this week, how often do you just end up even sort of subconsciously comparing yourself to one another? You see the person uh, pull up t- in, the, in the different kind of car. Oh, I wonder, I wonder how much money they make if they drive that kind of car. Or I wonder what kind of money they make if they live in that kind of house. Or, I, wow, I wonder how they did so well that their, their kids are so well behaved. Whatever, but like all these things, right? We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. But if we have the posture of service, we're not looking at others as to say like, how do I rank next to them? Are they, are they greater than me? Are they, they make more money than me? Do they achieve more? Are they, but we look at them asking the question, how can I love them? How can I serve them? How can I take care of them? Do you, do you see the shift that takes place? When we have Jesus' definition of greatness, we're not comparing ourselves to one another anymore. We're actually asking the question, how can I serve this person in front of me? No one is greater than the one who serves. No one is greater than the one who serves. And according to Jesus' redefinition of what greatness is as being among others as the one who serves, if we take that definition of greatness, being a servant, then friends, this church, our city, our world is in desperate need of people who are great. Our world is longing, our city is longing for people who are great as Jesus defines greatness. We're desperate for that. We are desperate for great, greatness. And, and, and here's, here's the thing with that. According to Jesus' definition of greatness, anyone can be great, right? Like you don't have to have, you don't have to have a 4.0 GPA. You can be failing all of your classes at school and you can still be great in Jesus's definition of greatness. The littlest children can be great. The most senior of saints can be great. The people with every human advantage can be great as well as those with every human disadvantage can be great because greatness is not about anything that we achieve on our own but by taking the posture of a servant and anyone can serve. Anyone who's been redeemed by Jesus and brought into his kingdom through self-sacrificial love is given this sort of capacity to also love others selflessly. And that's all service. The heart of service is love, of opening yourself to another person and giving yourself to them. Patrick Lencioni, who's a leadership expert, kind of business writer, organizational health. I love Patrick Lencioni. He's one of my, one of my favorites. Uh, he's written books, if you're not familiar with him, he's written books like The Advantage, uh, Death by Meeting, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, um, a, a, you know, The Ideal Team Player, all kind of on organizational health, leadership. Um, and his most recent book is called The Motive. It's a fascinating book. I think it's one of his best. It's very short. But he basically says there's really two motivations for leadership. There is 
rewards motivated leadership and there's service motivated leadership. You can get into the leadership game either because you want the rewards of leadership, the bigger office, the perks, the title, the position, or you can get into leadership because you want to serve. And he actually just argues that the, really the only true leadership is service, is servant-based leadership. And it's not an accident that Patrick Lencioni is, you know, he parses this out through lots of stories and statistics in the business world and that kind of thing. But Patrick is, he's a passionate follower of Jesus. There's a reason that he comes to this conclusion. And you, you see it play out. The heart of true leadership is service. Jesus says it here first. It's completely different. So I just want you to imagine for a moment. Think about your life tomorrow. Because, you know, at Christ Community, we want to be about a church for Monday. This is not just about coming here, feeling good for, you know, an hour on Sunday morning. We want life transformation all throughout the week. So think about tomorrow. Think about Monday. And think about this. What if everyone in your life, your boss, your spouse, I don't know, your coworkers, your kids, your housemates, what if tomorrow morning all those people woke up and they said, I'm just here to serve. They looked at you and said, I want to serve you. How different would your Monday be? If all the people around you were asking the question, how can I just, how can I serve you? How can I make your life better today? How can I give up my own preferences for you? I mean, that would transform, right? I mean, wouldn't that be an incredible place to live, an incredible office to be in, an incredible block to live on if your neighbors were that. Now, now flip that. What would it be like if you took that posture? And you said, I'm, just, I'm up and I'm waking up this morning and I'm going to take throughout my entire Monday the posture of saying each person I encounter, whether it's the person who's checking my groceries at Aldi, my spouse, my boss, my clients, the, I, I'm here to serve. I'm asking two basic questions. What needs to be done how can I help? What needs to be done? How can I help? Imagine, like, friends, if, if Kansas City was just filled with people who had been redeemed by Jesus, who had received such, a, such an identity from him, like we were talking about, that they could go in any space they want and ask those two questions. What needs to be done? How can I help? What a difference that would, what, how would our city just be transformed? Not, not for our glory, not for Christ's community's glory, but, but for Jesus' glory. Greatness begins at the table. And when we get Jesus' vision of greatness, we are never the same. And the places that we inhabit, our homes, they are forever transformed. And none of us do this perfectly, of course, but each week as we come to the communion table, we are reminded again that greatness is about self-sacrificial love and service. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you that you sent Jesus to upend the visions of greatness that make us miserable and enslaved, to set us free in the paradoxical vision of greatness that comes through service. 
I mean, you, you are always inviting us into paradox that the way to life is through death, <laughs> that the way to fruitfulness is through pruning, that the way to freedom is by taking on a yoke. And this is yet another one of those paradoxes that the way to true greatness is to go down, to be the lowest, to be a servant. And yet we trust you um, because we've seen it, even in your own life, that you took on that place and suffered even unto death and that you were exalted to the highest place, that the way to true greatness is through service. Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit, even now as we take these elements of communion, to be nourished and fed in your vision of greatness at the table? Would you give us renewed spiritual energy and strength as we celebrate communion together to go forth into our week, to serve sacrificially? In Jesus' name.